it's an earlier version of you. And it could be 10 years ago or two months ago. And that's fine, by the way. People get tripped up and they think I need to be so far. I have to have it way in the rear view. You do need it in the rear view. <laughs> that's true. You don't want to be so close to something because your perspective is not useful to a reader then. Mm. But you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have everything accomplished. You just have to be a little further down the road so that you can offer some guidance to people who want what you want. Most business owners and entrepreneurs are secretly sick of hustling. And if you are too, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Hustle Less, Profit More podcast with me, Mickey Anderson, where we're revolutionizing success because you should have it all. Business success, lasting wealth, freedom, and fulfillment. Join me on this quest to uncover the keys to defining and achieving success on our terms so we can all hustle less and profit more. If you've ever wondered how the greats create such amazing books that transform our lives every time we pick them up off the shelves, you are tuning into the right episode today. I am so excited to be speaking with AJ Harper about how to craft a must read, how to take an idea in your head and turn it into a transformational book for someone out there. AJ, thank you so much for joining me today. You're so welcome. I'm excited. So for the listeners, you know, as a ghostwriter, I feel like you miss out on a little bit of the celebrity status that you might be entitled to. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your experience as a ghostwriter and, and kind of maybe some of the people that you've worked with? Well, I can't actually talk to you about the people I worked with. Uh, there's one person who's opted to spread the news that I, I write with him, and that's Mike Michalowicz. And we've written... 10 books together, just started book 11, most notably Profit First, Clockwork, The Pumpkin Plan, Fix This Next. We have a new book coming out in January called All In, and that's about building unstoppable teams. But other than Mike, very few people have been willing to share that. And I do sign NDAs at the start of every relationship. So I have to honor those. And, you know, the reason why I, I knew this, but the reason why I wanted to ask it was because I think there is a lot of misconception around the help that people get to write books. I think a lot of aspiring writers, you know, and I, I can list off a bunch of friends who all wanted to write books, but felt like they had to do it alone. Like this yeah. was an internal journey that I needed to suffer through by myself without help. And I, I don't think that's the case, right? No, I mean, you, there's all kinds of help you can get. Um, it's not just ghostwriting. You can get a book coach to help you. You can take a class. I offer a class uh, once or twice a year to help people through the methodology I teach in my book. You can get an editor to help you take your manuscript to a certain level so it's ready for submission. Or if you're self-publishing, they can help you get it all the way to market. So there's all sorts of people who can help you get your book done. And I think regardless of where you're at in your book writing journey, sometimes a little bit of outside perspective can be helpful. We, I know for myself, one of my biggest challenges is I get stuck in my head a lot. Yes. <laughs> Going through the spiral. And sometimes it takes an, a, another person to, to pull you out and help you yeah. find your path. Um, I'd love to chat a little bit about taking an idea and coming up with that initial concept for your book. What does that look like? How can we identify what am I going to write about? 
Uh, well, it's not what you're going to write about. It's who you're going to write for. I think you probably knew I was going to say that. Yeah. Um, this is where people get tripped up. It's really about, at least when you're writing nonfiction and especially prescriptive nonfiction, which is the type of book that helps you improve something, right? So uh, whether or not you have a lot of how-to, that type of nonfiction, personal development, professional development, that's about who you're helping and what they need and less about what it's about. I love that. And I think, you know, one of the things that you you speak about in, in your book, Write a Must Read, is some people go a little bit too far with the old avatar. Yes. <laughs> and and I'd love to share with the readers kind of your perspective on, on identifying who the book is for and how to use that as you write. Sure. So we tend, we, usually we think that our audience is either everyone, which is not true, or something really specific like a marketing avatar, which if you're an entrepreneur, and I know your audience is, there are they are entrepreneurs, um, the tendency is to try that marketing avatar when you're focused on your book. And I get it. And that's that I, that's totally cool that you would go there. It's just, it's not about, say, what a person, their age. Sometimes it's not even about gender. Occasionally it is really about gender because it's maybe a woman's issue or a man's issue. But I think a lot of the time it isn't and we think it is. It's not necessarily about age unless, say, you're writing about uh, menopause or aging gracefully, that sort of thing. But it's really about hearts and minds. It's not about the car you drive, the income you have, how many kids you have, your geographic location. We create these uh, personas and really it's about really simply put what your reader wants and what they perceive is standing in the way. So the want and the obstacle. And to be really clear, this is where a lot of authors get tripped up. They think that the obstacle is what they think it is. So I know what's stopping you from writing a must read book because I know that you might think it's something else. And it's that crucial point of connection that needs to happen. So if you can understand what does your reader want and what do they perceive as standing in the way, that's really what you need to know about the reader, not their preferred breakfast cereal, not their, not, not any of that stuff. Uh, not, not if they have a high school education or a college, none of that really matters. I think that's so helpful because we, we, I know for myself, like I do get wrapped up in some of the nuances, right? You can go down the rabbit hole of, and I've heard this a lot of times and I, I'd love to kind of hear your opinion on it. Um, even though I, I think I know what it is. I still love to hear it. Um, but I'm writing the book for me. I am my ideal reader is what I've heard many people say. And I've heard that from entrepreneurs running businesses. And I'm sure you've probably heard that as well from authors. It's an earlier version of you. And it could be 10 years ago or two months ago. And that's fine, by the way. People get tripped up and they think I need to be so far. I have to have it way in the rear view. You do need it in the rear view. That's true. You don't want to be so close to something because your perspective is not useful to a reader then. Mm. But you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have everything accomplished. You just have to be a little further down the road so that you can offer some guidance to people who want what you want. I think that's really helpful. And I know that, you know, in the book, you talk a little bit about your work with Mike Pekalowitz and how he was struggling with a challenge related to uh, delivering on the promise of his book, right? He wasn't quite as far maybe, and I could be completely messing this up, but I think it's a different person you're talking about in the book. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's okay. It's just, uh, 
I know what you're referring to. You're actually talking about Sam in the book. And Sam is a person who lost his husband. And so he had the promise he wanted to give readers. He couldn't, he wasn't giving it to himself. So he didn't feel like he could, he could actually write the book. Some people I'll, you know, for him, I said, yeah, take a minute, take a break, but maybe you just modify the promise. That's another way to look at it. You can also just modify the promise so that it's something that you can actually deliver on that you are actually experiencing. Yeah. I like that idea. Sometimes we get tied to like a process or the promise or the thing so much that it feels like I can't change my mind now. I'm this far out. So how do I pivot change? And I'm sure like that's a whole journey of its own learning how to adapt when things change. And that's something you speak to quite a bit is, is as you go through this process, the process of discovery and learning and like things are going to change along the way as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, there's, we, we have this idea that as authors, we have to be perfect and that every, we have to know everything we're doing and know how everything's going to go. And it's good to have, I always say in my class, let's get you to 80% where you feel 80% good about something. And uh, then you'll figure, then you can move forward and you can tweak things as you go. Mm. I feel like all of the perfectionists listening are, we're going to struggle with that a little <laughs> bit, but I think it's great advice, not just in terms of book writing, but probably most things in life. If you can get yourself to 80 and take a few steps forward, it's probably easier to come back and, and fix things later or adjust things later. Yeah. And people tend to not even try to, so there's, there's two Ways okay. Let me let me back up a minute because I want to get this right. There's two things I see most often, and it's not that it's the only things. It's not a binary, but I see people try. Okay, I'm don't need a lot of information to get going. I'm just gonna wing it. I'm just gonna get it going. Uh, and then we have people who have to have 110 percent perfect before they start. And I'd like I like to say the 80 because I don't want you to get started on a book until you've really thought a lot of things through primarily about the reader and what would be helpful to them. Uh, on the other hand, I don't want you to get stuck trying to make it perfect because a lot of writing a book is, let me get to here, figure it out. Okay, I might have to take a few steps back, then let me get to here. And it's it's not, um, there's this line in this Indigo Girls song that says, you'll never fly as the crow flies, get used to a country mile. And it's like that. And we want the book to just be bing, bang, boom, especially because we hear you can write a book in 90 days and you can, but it might not be a book that is life-changing for folks. I think that's actually a great kind of place to move is to the timeline expectations, because I know a lot of people assume that you can whip a book, a good book out very quickly. And I think the expectations are a little bit misaligned. And I I see it as a bit of a consumer cultural influence as well. Like I'm going to create, give and move on to the next thing. Bang, bang, boom. Instead of really, as you say, like crafting that must read. Mm -hmm. Would you, so if you had say some aspiring readers listening right now, how would you kind of set the expectations around the time frame it takes to craft a really great book? Oh, it, you know, it's just, there's no way, there's no way for me to give you a number, but I can say devote more time to the development than mm. you think. So development is who's my reader? What do they want? What are their big questions? How will I address them? How can I give them what they want? Does my framework work? Does my 
process make sense? Do I have the content I need? All of those big questions, you need to devote more time to that than you think. Um, The writing part could, once you have an outline together that is pretty detailed so that you know, I'm going to say this about this and uh, this story goes with it and so forth. um, That writing could take you three months, six months, nine months. It just depends What's your work schedule like? What are your, you know, do you have a bunch of kids? Do you have a bunch of projects? And then can you manage the inner critic troll in your brain, which is really holding you back? So all those things, also life happens. My book was, I had to push it back twice because there were a lot of personal health or family health issues that I can't control that. External things happen. So if in a perfect world, you should be able to get your draft done in six months or less if you've done enough development, then the next part is there's just too many variables to give you a timeline. So it depends on the publishing path you choose. Mm. You know, I think, um, I think that's a great kind of tone to set because we set these expectations or these boxes, these standards, if it's going to be good, it needs to be this. If it's going to be this, it needs to be this. And I think like writing a book feels like it's a really internal process. There's a lot that has to happen both for you personally, along with like the actual things you need to create. And so to set it like a strict timeline on that feels a little bit kind of misaligned. I think you can set a timeline. Just don't, don't stay attached to it so that you're going to end up being mad at yourself after it's good to set the goals because if you don't, you won't get as far. And I think any business person knows this to be true. That said, you know, I like to call it a loose plan. Let's have a loose plan where we're not going to be devastated, where our finances aren't dependent on it. Right. That's, that's really important, but keep moving forward. Yeah. I love that. I, uh, I'm curious to know too. So in moving from kind of helping readers craft their book, being really involved, and you still are really involved in helping your writers create that book. But then also you run workshops to help authors kind of go through your framework. And the kind of personal (laughs) uh, me here secretly having questions and wanting to know more out of curiosity's sake, you know, I'd love to learn about the process you went through in refining and crafting and understanding your own process for writing a book and then turning that into a process that you could share with others. Can you speak a little bit about how that went down? Yeah. I mean, I, I, listen, I, I was a playwright. I didn't start writing books until well into my writing career, about halfway in. I've been writing as a professional for 33 years. So it's been 18 years in publishing and I had to figure it out. I just had to figure out, nobody taught me a class um, I, or rather I didn't take a class. Nobody taught me that I hadn't have a coach. And it was back in the day when we weren't really on Skype. We didn't use zoom online classes were not typical. You know, it was just sort of uh, I figured it out kind of thing. I had an aptitude for it. Ghostwriting specifically, I think because of my playwriting background, because I can become any, I can hear a person's voice and I can do that voice. Uh, because I was used to writing characters. That said, I had to figure it out. And some of my early ghostwriting gigs, I probably didn't do a great job. So it's just, it was feeling my way. But because I started writing exclusively for personal and professional development, so self-help business, personal wellness, wealth, spirituality, all that stuff, I got really good at that and learning how to write something truly remarkable that 
respects the reader's journey that, but that was me feeling my way. And, uh, I didn't think I could teach it. And it was Mike McCallowitz who challenged me. And he said that was BS, except he did. He's definitely cursing. <laughs> and, uh, he said that was my ego and he challenged me to figure out how to teach it for others because I was ready to not just, I was giving up ghostwriting, but I was ready to give up all of it. And thankfully I listened to him and there's a process, you know, and I think this is true for authors as well. If you're, if you're in business, for example, and you have client work, what works for your client may not work in a class because the client work, you're usually having one-on-one interactions and you might not be able to do that in a class. And then that might not work in a book. So what I did was I just went through the process of first doing client work that was not ghosting and just seeing, could I, can I teach someone how to do this on their own? I paid really close attention to what I say all the time. So I think if you're in business, keep a notepad handy, jot down. What do you say all the time? Those are the, that's the beginning of a framework. That's the beginning of a class. It's the beginning of a book. Once I was confident I could teach it to one person, I tried to do it in a class and just like everything I did a beta and then I got it better at it. It's just such a process of getting better at it. And then I, I really just decided to write my own book because I wanted, um, for lack of a better term, to democratize it. I, you know, I only teach, uh, I teach anywhere from 15 to 30 students a year and that's it. And I like it that way. So uh, in my top three book workshop, that is. So I, that's not fair. So I just, I wanted to get the information down on paper so that you could just grab the book and learn from it. Um, but the process is, I went through the same thing of just trying stuff. I think, I think the difference between a successful artist or an experienced artist and someone who's just starting out writing something is we aren't afraid to try things because we know eventually we'll get there. And when you're just starting and you're into this foreign land of writing a book, that's scary to try stuff. We, on the other hand, those of us that have been around the block a few times, we know, well, okay, this might not be right, but I'll eventually get it right. And that's the only difference. So that's how I did it. I just kept trying stuff. I think that's so inspiring. A lot of times we assume that, you know, we we put people on pedestals, we have mentors and we assume that they just figured it out and they were like, it was good. <laughs> we yeah. we compare our year one to their year 10. And I think it, it's something that a lot of, and I know for myself, I definitely do that, but I think it's a good reminder. Like you got to put on your testing mode hat. Everyone's got to like grind through and learn in their own way. That's yeah. just, I think that's really powerful and also like a great reminder personally for all of us as well. Yeah. yeah. That's where the good stuff happens when you try things. Yeah. I love it. Um, now, say for example, you have an aspiring writer and they have a small audience. Maybe they have a little bit of followers. They've got some people who could be like ideal readers. How do we start to, as we're crafting our book, how do we start to leverage the voices of those people, the information they hold to help make our book better? Uh, hmm. Let me see if I understand the question. You mean in if they read the book or what, let me ask where, yeah. So if we're in the writing process, for example, and I'm, I've got a bunch of people that I know maybe who could be ideal readers. Is there a way that I could kind of use them as guinea pigs along the way to make sure that my book's good? Yeah. I mean, you can go through a process of, you know, testing your content along the way. You can do it through different type of courses or boot camps or a class or an interactive webinar or a speech 
focus group, something to see if your message lands. And when you're ready, you can also give them a chapter and ask for specific feedback. Um, I do think it's important to be careful about that if you are at a very early baby stage of it, because that can, if you're not careful, even well-intentioned feedback can derail your process because maybe you think, oh, this wasn't a good idea after all. AI has already completely revolutionized how we create content. But honestly, ChatGPT is not good at long-form content. Conversion copywriter here, and to be honest, most AI tools out there stink at long-form content. With content at scale in just five minutes, you can generate high-quality, engaging, research-backed, 2,500-word-plus articles. Their AI immediately crawls Google and parses all the top-ranking content to generate 100% original, research-backed, 2,500-word articles for your website from a single keyword, an existing YouTube video, a podcast episode like this one, or a URL. Using Content at Scale's innovative AI technology, an experienced writer can now generate and edit up to 10 long-form pieces of content in just one day. And you can get started using Content at Scale now with my exclusive offer for 20% more post credits for free on any plan you purchase. It's a deal you won't find outside of my special link. So head to the episode description and snag the link now and start rocking long form content with Content at Scale. Remember I said earlier, experienced and successful author, authors and artists, we know okay, if that didn't work, we'll try something else. But if you aren't familiar with that and you don't have a lot of experience with the creative process, that might make you stop in your tracks. So mm. protect protect yourself, definitely get the feedback, but do it one at a time when you feel confident enough to receive it. I like that. I think sometimes we, um, especially in this age of social media, at least, like we're, we're so influenced by the perspectives of others, right? By the likes and we go after the things that we think will be popular instead of the things that actually work or are good or are aligned with whatever it is we're trying to do. So I think that's a, a good reminder. Like it's okay to ask for feedback, but check yourself when you do it. Yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, you don't need feedback a hundred percent of the way through the process. So mm-hmm. you don't want to also use it to make sure that uh, to reassure yourself. You want to just mm. think of it as information. It's information. Is this working in its current state or not? And if it's not, what can I do to fix it? That's gotta be really tough. Like I think for myself, even if I, if I'm, you know, putting my heart and soul into something and then I, I, I put it out there and I try and brainwash myself to say, it's just data, it's just information and not take it personally, but it's gotta be probably tough to get feedback that maybe you weren't expecting or were hoping would be different along the way. Yeah, it's almost tough. It's not as tough for me probably because any writer that's been writing for more than 30 years knows how to handle feedback. (laughs) So it's probably not as tough for me, but I think it's always, you know, my advice for people when they're about to read feedback or when they're about to go through their copy edits or editorial notes from a developmental editor is to read it all and then close your computer and then walk away and give yourself 24 hours and then come back. Because when you read it a second time, you won't have, you won't be as riled up. Then you can see it for what it is. But initially you might say, what, what are they saying? So you just kind of have to read it all, close it, 
come back the next day. I think that's such good advice for the listeners, honestly. So we all get feedback we don't love, right? And I'm, I am an impulsive person. Let me tell you, (laughs) I will open up that email and go for it. But I do, I have to like stop and really work hard to take the time to like, let the emotions go away before I come back. And I think whether you're writing or whatever it is that you're doing, I, 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 time, sometimes we rush ourselves or we feel like, oh, I need to change it now, or I need to address it now. Do you? (laughs) No. And in fact, you won't think about it the same way. Your initial reaction is very emotional and rooted in things that might be hard for you to fix. You don't have to fix them. You can just take a break come back to it. And it always happens for me. I read through everything. I'm, a few things that might've just gotten my, just uh, might've just made me irritated. The next day I'll say, oh, okay. I can, let me think about that. All you need to do is consider it. It's not, they're not right and you're wrong and they're not wrong and you're right. It's just information that you want to, might want to consider. So if a reader is missing something, if they don't get it for some reason, it's ultimately your responsibility to ensure they do. So that's actually really helpful. And later, if you have an editor, thank, thank goodness for them. I am one. Um, I'm grateful for any editorial notes I get when I'm writing because maybe I didn't think of it. Maybe I didn't see it because I'm too close to it. So just take a minute and let your emotions calm down. And then you'll, then you'll see uh, whether or not it has any value for you. Mm, Yeah. I think that's, that's great advice for all of us. And I mean, writing a book has got to be probably, or at least for most people, a pretty emotional experience, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You have to relive things if you're telling stories or reflecting on your own experiences, or maybe those of people around you. And so taking that time, I think throughout the process is probably pretty important too. Yeah. Uh, there's, it's, it should be transformative for you as well. Uh, it's, you know, you're refining your concepts. You're making sure that they work. You're remembering stuff. You're figuring out what's important to tell. It's just, there's so much. It also requires you to get past that inner critic every day. And that's a workout. It's an emotional and mental workout. So, yes. Yes. You know, there's a word that you mentioned that I kind of want to chat about a little bit, and it's the word responsibility. And, you know, as I was perusing your book through, I think I felt a a shift in the way that I looked at writing a book in terms of responsibility as an author, like my responsibility to the reader. And I know that there are a lot of like book whiz people out there who don't necessarily see it that way, but I'd love to hear about your take on what responsibility we have as a writer to our reader. All of it. And the whole point of doing the book at all is to be of service to them. And obviously it's also, you want it to be something that's useful to you and helpful to you as you move forward uh, in your business, in your career, whatever it is you're doing. But ultimately the whole point is for it to be of service to the reader. Otherwise, why would they read it? Mm. It's not a marketing piece. It's supposed to actually help them get what they want. And so all of it is about them, all of it. Yeah, I I think that's really important to note because, you know, we talk about books in marketing all the time, right? Books can be helpful tools, but I think it's one thing to make a promise to a reader and then not deliver on that promise. Mm -hmm. I think it's brain damaging. It's also just really kind of mean (laughs) to like dangle the carrot there and then not give it to them in the book and make them wait to get that knowledge or information that they need. Yeah, so... 
you know, it's that we want to promise so much because we want it to be, we're excited and we want to give them what they want. But when we don't do that, it's a disappointment. I think readers are also sort of jaded right now and they don't expect the promise to be delivered. Mm. But it's actually really good to think about a promise you can deliver on because then that helps you actually craft the organization of the book. So it helps you determine what goes in the book and what doesn't go in the book. Yeah, I think um, I think it's a kind of a, a thoughtful reminder. And I think it's a, also obviously like a really important piece that like when you promise anything, you got to think it through. You can't just promise regardless. Yes, absolutely. Can you deliver on it? And if not, do you need to modify it so you can or do you need to do something else so you can rise to the occasion? Mm. I like that the way that you worded that rise to the occasion. I, I think that shifts like, like the way I was looking at it was like, wow, that feels like a lot of responsibility and a really hard thing. But the moment you said rise to the occasion, I was like, oh, actually, yeah, <laughs> like I felt my whole body shift. Yeah, it's a fun question. And it might be that you need to modify it and bring down the promise. But and let's be cl- clear. So your listeners know it's not a promise that they'll get eventually. It's a promise that they'll get by the end of the book. So they turned the last page, they read every word, they did everything you asked them to do if that if you did have how-tos or action steps. What's different for them? What do you want that to be? And if you want it to be, you know, significant, can you what do you need to do? Then that challenges you. Is there more I could do? And that's a fun question. Yeah, I love that. I think that that definitely changed the tone for me. I found it a lot more exciting of a process because I like, I don't know, for me, I look at writing a book as like a, wow, that's a lot. (laughs) I'm still in that phase of like, it's a lot. lot. And, and I think it, the more fun and exciting of an experience you can make writing a book, probably the better. Yes. Um, listen, I'll be frank with you though. There's moments of fun and there's a lot of moments that aren't. Mm -hmm. And that's just, again, because it's, it's a brand new territory and people have these wacky expectations about what it's going to be like and why would it be simple you are it's like going to mars what do you know about mars how are you going to get there are there what's there if there were people there or beings of some sort what's the language what are the rules what are the laws how do i survive how do i get home i don't know i mean it's really a lot like that um or what i imagine it would be like to go to a completely different planet so don't don't have this expectation that it's going to be like the movies where writers go to a cabin and maybe they have a few moments where they crumple papers and toss them on the ground and oh I'm so blocked but then they have magic and their fingers fly it's not like that it's a lot of grunt work and trying stuff and failing and figuring it out and then it's also a lot of magic but you don't get the magic if you aren't actually moving forward even when you on the bad days yeah yeah I think it's that like Instagram highlights reel that we all see and assume that's reality when it's not at all yes yeah so the other thing I wanted to chat briefly about was you talked about being an editor and the editorial process and I think there's a lot of misinformation around the editorial process of crafting a book, what's required, what's going to really step you up, because we do see a lot of these companies out there, these people out there who are like one and done, a book in a day, a book in a week, a book in 90 days. And it's like, wait, what? (laughs) So can you briefly walk us through what the ideal editorial process looks like once someone's crafted that kind of initial draft? Uh, It just, this is all depends. It just depends on the publishing path that they choose. So, you know, you 
there are many different kinds of, well, several different kinds of editors. And most people don't realize that they need an editor to help them make sure their book works before they go to copy edit. Most people think of editing as copy editing, which is, Mm -hmm. did I spell it right? Grammar, syntax, punctuation, formatting, continuity, some fact-checking. That's that's you, there's a whole other side of editing before that, which is to make sure that does it flow? Um, do, do you deliver on the promise? Is the tone consistent? Do you have too much of this? Not enough of that? Uh, is it? Uh, is are there any things that might be offensive to people? Uh, how could you make it better? Basically, it's the thirty thousand foot view. And that editor, you can get one on your own and contract with them if you're self-publishing. You can also get one to help you make your manuscript better before you submit it to a publisher. But if you're writing nonfiction, you don't have to finish the whole manuscript. You can do a book proposal and one to three chapters and then submit that for, for to, to a hybrid or traditional publisher, at which point you'd be assigned that editor. So that's why I say it varies. You, mm-hmm. If you're going to self-publish, you need to contract with that person on your own. You can also contract with that person in advance to try and improve your manuscript if you're going for a traditional or hybrid deal. But if you get the deal, you'll automatically get that editor. Well, I think some hybrids good. don't have that editor, I should say, but they should. Most. I of think them. that's worth noting, though, because I think a lot of people assume that like publishing is just a one-stop shop path. But it's not there, right? That we've got the self-published, the guided self-published, and then there's hybrid, and then there's traditional. And so, if, for somebody who's looking at this world, going, "Oh goodness, like I have no idea what I'm doing," is there like a quick way to identify who is who? Um, who is who? Just I'm sorry, clarify. What types of publishers are which? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you you can identify which publisher is which. It's you know they say if they're a traditional publisher or not. Uh, but let me just explain that traditional publishing costs zero money to you. A traditional publisher is entering into a contract with you to publish the book, and they're paying you for that privilege through an advance on royalties or just through royalties if there's no advance. So if any publisher asks you to invest, even buy one copy of your book, they're not a traditional publisher. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, but yeah. hybrid publishers identify themselves, but they, so a, lot of, a lot of companies can call themselves a hybrid you want to go to the ibpa.org and get their hybrid publishing standards to make sure that the hybrid you're looking at is actually following those recommendations. Um, you know, uh, publishers can call themselves a self-publishing packages and so forth. They'll just say publisher, but that doesn't mean they're a traditional publisher. So do you have to invest any money? If the answer is yes, they're not traditional. Uh, do you... Another factor is trade distribution. Understanding that is probably a whole nother hour of a conversation. But there's this is, again, like I said, it's Mars. Mm -hmm. So the important thing is to get educated. One thing that I can tell you is in my book, Write a Must Read, chapter 15 gives you a crash course in this. So you have some knowledge about how to make these decisions. And if you don't want to buy my book, you can actually go to writeamustread.com and download cha- that chapter by itself just to at least have the education. I wanted to make sure that, you know, mo- lots of authors give away their first chapter. I do that, but I also give away that chapter because I want you to have the knowledge and then a great person to follow if you really want to understand publishing so you can make a good decision is Jane Friedman. She is uh, 100% in integrity and has just extensive knowledge about all the different paths. So those are a couple of ways for you to start getting educated. 
I love it. You know, I think the the big key takeaway there is like, it's not as easy as it looks. And unless you're educated, you're gonna have a really hard time making the right decision for you and for your book. Yeah, just taught a free class on how to make critical publishing decisions, actually. And you can watch it on my YouTube channel if you want to go there. The re- what the gist of that class, and I walked people through how to think about it, is we tend to think of a publishing decision based on what we think we're capable of or misconceptions in the industry. So a lot of times people will say to me, uh, well, I don't think I can get a traditional deal. And I'll say, why? Well, it's because somebody said something to them. Mm-hmm. So we need to make critical publishing decisions based on our on our reader and what they need, and then our own set of priorities and resources. And then maybe you still end up having to do this other path that you thought you were going to start with. But let's not let's not begin the whole publishing process with a compromise. Mm, I love it. I think that there it's a very complicated world. <laughs> <laughs> and and unless you have the right tools and information like it, you're probably going to make it the decision from something you heard someone else say or from an assumption and and I think it just kind of reiterates the whole point of this like don't just jump into writing a book as like a quick one and done situation like but a, but that's sorry to interrupt but that's I think that's why we want to we just go for the 90 day thing because it is so much there's so much to learn so that just seems like a better path mm. The problem is there are very few books written in that short period of time that truly make an impact. There are always exceptions, but most of us are never going to be the exception. So it's better to write a better book. It's also, there are a lot of things you miss when you publish too fast. A lot of opportunities you miss for marketing and other things. So, you know, yeah, you, yes, you can, but no, you shouldn't. (laughs) Love it. That's the, that's the snippet right there. Amazing. So AJ, you run a workshop and obviously like for the listeners, you got to pick up, write a must read, um, the paperback version, but there's also the audible version. And I have to say, like, I I like to get both because I'm, that's just the way I absorb books. I like to study books, not just read them. And I find your voice is just so soothing in the audible version. So for anyone who's getting, going to get the audio, it's spectacular, just like, it's the most, it felt like a warm hug as I was listening to it. That's (laughs) so nice. Just That's awesome. Nice. So for the listeners who want to get a hold of you, head to writeamustread.com. Also, there's ajharper.com. And that's where I have information about classes and things. There's a YouTube channel that has so much free stuff on it. Uh, so I, I do a lot of free things. So the best thing is to join my mailing list at ajharper.com. And that's when you'll hear about things I'm doing. I also have a free newsletter with really helpful tips. So lots of free stuff. Awesome. Yes. I will link everything in the show notes for the listeners. AJ, thank you so much for the conversation. It was insightful. I learned a ton and I feel like more than anything, I gained a lot of confidence in the fact that I don't have to know it all in order to be good at anything or to even take steps towards one day becoming good. If that's what you have, yes, then mission accomplished. I'm so happy and I'm excited for whatever book you're working on to come be out in the world. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You did it. You finished another episode of the Hustle Less, Profit More podcast. Season two has been brought to you by Content at Scale. With Content at Scale's world-class SEO AI writer, in just five minutes, you can generate high-quality, research-backed, 2,500-word articles. And here on the Hustle Less, Profit More podcast, we use Content at Scale to create blog posts from every single episode, which you can explore along with our show notes and resources at hustle 
profitmore.com. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast. Now join us again next time to uncover more of the keys to defining and achieving success on our terms. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.